This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's 1944. There's a murder. Someone's committed a crime. Who could it be? Well, anyone but that man from Medford, because he's a real stand-up guy. Double Indemnity. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And welcome to the podcast where we go through AFI's top 100 movies of all time, the 2007 edition, to find out if these movies hold up. Are they the greatest films ever made? And don't correct me about the greatest American films. I get it. That's what we're talking about here. The American films. It, AFI does have a European list, okay? People might get mad if the American Film Institute had a European list. Like, who are you, you bullies? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so last week we talked about All, all about, Eve. about Eve. We talked all about All About Eve. We talked so much All About Eve. I love this movie, and it seemed like our listeners did as well. I mean, there's so many uh, good little things that were popping up all over the place. Yeah, I feel like the love for All About Eve has been stronger than almost the love we've seen for anything on this list, to be honest. The love for All About Eve was so good, I was like, why is this movie at 28? Should this movie be higher? Like, should we be like, all right, The General, all right, Grapes of Wrath, all right, The Graduate. Maybe you guys get pushed a bit down. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like what people are responding to is this movie has a rewatchability factor to it, like A Wizard of Oz, but it also has this critical component, like Citizen Kane. And that's the first time we've really uh, seen those two things kind of uh, mash up. Right, where it's super, super fun and smart, where you want to just hear the dialogue over and over again, because King Kong is great. King Kong is super fun. Yeah. But you, you kind of get it the first time exactly, you watch it. Exactly, yeah. it's awesome to rewatch, but it, in a different way. I actually was so into these comments that we got on our Twitter and on the Facebook uh, group, but there's one that really stuck out to me. I thought it was a good hot take. I was asking you, how long do you think passed between the time where Margot became the huge big star. And we agreed it was about eight months because that was the time of the season. Michael Arrow 001 brought up a good point. He goes, 
I believe that only eight months had passed between Eve stalking Margot and Phoebe stalking Eve, but it was odd that a club had been dedicated to Eve, and I just assumed that Phoebe is lying just like Eve did prior in the film to Margot. What do you think about lying. that? Lying. Yeah, that there was a club dedicated to Margot. Because eight months, that's a, that's a short time to get a club together. I it's- mean, I'm intrigued by this idea. Although we do also, I think here, Addison said that there's a bunch of clubs and everybody knows all about even the opening monologue when okay. he's narrating. But I do love this theory that Phoebe is a big liar. Because why wouldn't she be? Yeah. I would be. Let's get into Phoebe. I want to see like a sequel with yeah. Phoebe. And why is lying bad anyways? It means you're an it's actor. It's Hollywood. That's what <laughs> happens here, baby. Right, speaking of bad, I like that a lot of people took my side in saying, Paul, what is your problem for disliking Karen, you horrible person? Karen is lovely. (laughs) I still believe she's the root of evil. (laughs) Also, I was so happy to get a bunch of tweets from people who are now hooked on Betty Davis, and they're like, what Betty Davis do I do next? I'm a Betty Davis freak now. Um, And I was thinking you jump back to some early Betty Davis, maybe you do some now Voyager, you do some Old Maid, you do some Mr. Skeffington, you do some Jezebel, pick one or two of basically anything she did. She's great in all of it. Get a couple of young Bettys in, and then, then, my friend, you are ready for maybe my favorite one, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Oh, wow. I still have not seen that one. <gasps> You're going to die. It's so good. I cannot wait. You know what? We have our own list on the website of what films we should think we think should be on the AFI Top 100. I'm just going to say Baby Jane, man. That movie is so great. Well, consider it up on unspooledpod.com. You can check it out and keep track of the movies. Uh, that we think you should be watching, and our ranking of our list, which we now call the uh, API list, the Amy and Paul Institute. Um, Amy, should we get into it? Should we get into this week's movie? Let's do it. Now first, before we get into Double Indemnity, you guys called in for Double Indemnity, our movie about murder, by telling us how you would murder Engineer Sam. And I'm so excited, I'm making a list. My perfect murder of Engineer Sam would be to pick him up and then use my insulin to inject Sam and then point a small amount of cocaine in his car. So then, on his way home, pulled over to throw him in jail. I sneak into Earwolf Studios late at night. Uh, poison his headphones and then I'm going to pick some delicious cookies and then I'm going to open the oven and just like wash that smell out the door now, at this point in time, I believe everybody would believe Sam is rock bottom. And then he's going to come on in and be like, oh, where's the cookies? And then I grab a microphone cord and pull it taut between my hands. And then he's gasping for breath. And I say, play it again, Sam. And then he did. And then take his body to the Everglades where the alligators would eat him. That would make total sense because that happens every day in the Everglades in Florida and there's your cover story Yo Sam watch your back Amy number 29 on the AFI's greatest movies of all time list double indemnity one of my favorites I think one of my first introductions to film noir well when did you watch this um I think back in high school And I loved it because I was a big fan of Fred McMurray, who, in my mind, had only been like the shaggy DA, you know, like these Disney movies. I thought he was so kind of charismatic, and it kind of blew my mind to see him as this cigarette-smoking kind of, you know, real machismo. Yeah. I got three sons, baby. (laughs) 
I love my three thumbs. <laughs> um, but he's great in this film. I mean, it also started my kind of, uh, in quotes, like love affair with Barbara Stanwyck, who I think is fantastic. And Lady Eve is amazing. and The I, hottest thing. Voted at one point, I think, best legs in Hollywood, which oh, wow. you can definitely see in her opening scene. Well, I look, I mean, Fred McMurray essentially just lusts after her anklet. I mean, like, he's like looking at that leg 100%. Where do you fall on this movie? This movie is fantastic. Right? I love this movie. I love what a dope Fred McMurray is in this. I mean, probably my first noir, if we're going to be real honest, was like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Okay, sure. So I like I saw that movie set the conventions of this before I saw the real stuff. Well, I guess you're right. I I saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit before this, but I don't think of it as a noir. By the way, can we define what a noir is? How would you define it? I'm going to defer to you. I have a dictionary definition of it, but what would you say? It's tough. I mean, and what makes it interesting is that noir wasn't, called anything when Double Indemnity came out. Double Indemnity comes out, and it's just a melodrama. Right. You know, noir as a word is invented, of course, by the French when they're talking about these American films later, being like, you know, these films these guys are making, they're kind of shadowy, literally, you know, because film noir is taking this look of German expressionism, which was all about expressing emotion and mood through the way that a film looked. So heightened crazy angles, shadows that go over people's faces, things that put you... In a spell, in an uneasy mood, you know, where everything isn't well lit. Yeah. So they're taking that idea and then they're blending it with this idea that the world is dark. You know, there's a lot of tropes that go in along with it. There's usually like a duplicitous woman, hard beaten cop, a lot of stuff happening in cities, a lot of smoking. All these filmmakers, especially director Billy Wilder, starting this trend that really isn't even called that for 25 years. The idea of living in a movement that you don't realize is a movement. You know, if you look at the dictionary definition, they say it's, you know, a style or genre of film that's marked by pessimism, fatalism, and menace. And I could argue that that idea is very present in, like, late 70s filmmaking, too. You know, it's not all roses. It's it's not a happy ending always. You know, and that those aren't, you know, film noir. That's just a, a different level of making a film. A gri- they call it gritty. It's a gritty cinema, you know. Did you know that the director of photography on this film, John F. Seitz, created the um, shooting through the blinds or using blinds as representation of, like, these characters being in prison? But the idea of, like, shooting through blinds was his uh, conceit, something that you would see, you know, even in uh, that Coen Brothers movie with Billy Bob Thornton, The Man Who Wasn't There, you know? Yeah, this look that is... A cliche that people almost play with now. Isn't there something in Roger Rabbit, maybe I'm hallucinating it, where an eyeball even goes through blinds and like is looking around inside the blinds? Oh, I bet you. It feels about right. Mini blinds mean so much. And this guy, Sights, was amazing. You know, to make these rooms in Dublin Indemnity look dustier and smoggier. To this film, I mean, this is a movie set in L.A. that seems to have almost no fresh air and sunshine. No, it is. uh, You can smell the cigarette smoke in it. It it feels so thick. Yeah, and Sights is like blowing kind of like a ground aluminum powder into these rooms because that way they hit the light. You see the smoke and the the dust in the air. And I also wonder if that causes cancer, but who knows? Oh, I'm sure of it. I, I did a movie where we had to be running through some explosions and everyone two days after those shots had terrible chest issues and coughing. I'm like, if we're feeling that on day two, this is not right. But to speak to this, I feel like this is the movie if you're going to introduce anyone to a film noir. I mean, this is... 
I mean, this is the best you can get. I, I, I don't know. Like, you know, it passes that uh, smell test of feeling relevant. You could put this on right now and it feels of the now just as much as it felt of the now then. Yeah, it's sexy as hell. It, oh, yeah. To me in the year of our Lord, 2018, this movie, what I really clue into is how dumb Fred McMurray is and how smart he is. How much Fred McMurray is this, like, masculine, tough guy, yeah. like, I'm on to you, sweetheart. And you know that he's an idiot from the very beginning. Because well, we this talk is a lot in 2018, maybe too much. I feel yeah. a little bad about how much we talk about mansplaining and yeah. things. But Fred McMurray... Being such a dummy and yet being so convinced he's smarter than this woman is amazing. Well, I want to now argue this point with you because I didn't think that he was dumb. Why do you think he's dumb? Okay, here's why I think Fred Murray is exceptionally stupid. Okay. And it's an understanding that Barbara Stanwyck is a woman with a brain of her her own that he has to think another level beyond. Okay. Because he feels like he's on to her right at the beginning when she's hinting about wanting insurance, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, okay. I get this, sweetheart, but I can still make her work. Like, she's playing to his ego in such beautiful, subtle ways that he doesn't pick up. Like, this whole murder plot is her idea. But when she talks to him about it on the phone, she's like, it'll be the train, Walter, just the way you want it, making it seem like it's his. And he has that line where he's like, you know, we're going to play this straight. We're going to do it straight. And she keeps mirroring it back to him. He says it once. She says it to him like four or five more times. In this way of kind of making it feel like this is all him. This is all his doing it. And he never picks up on it to the point that even when he goes to meet her at her house at the end in one of the big climaxes, he says, what I didn't know was that she had plans of her own. And it's because he's not really thinking about it. He's never inside her brain. Well, he doesn't stop to take in the fact of how she married her husband, right? I feel like that's the biggest clue when the daughter, Lola, tells him she was the nurse. His instinct is to help cover that up, not go, huh. Exactly. I mean, and Barbara Stanwyck even tells him she was the nurse, but because he's so convinced that this woman's hot for him, kind of like, you know, we got like a spying thing happening yeah. in America where an old guy was like, oh, this young Russian woman totally loves me, yeah. totally hot for me, half my age. She's got this. Oh, I'm fine. That's who Fred McMurray is. He's like, I know that Barbara Stanwyck's hot for me. We've done it maybe once, I think once. Yeah. And and he gets back into his full outfit very quickly. I mean, he is. And you know what? Now that you say it, I see him kind of taking the more feminine role in that sexual encounter because he's just sitting legs up on the couch smoking as if he was the one taken by this. You know, like, like she kind of had her way with him because he seems kind of like basking in that, not, you know, um, and she's getting ready and going back out like as if it was a one night stand. Yeah. And I love how the only way that you can kind of guess that they definitely had sex in that movie is A, his cigarette. And B, when she leaves, the rug's a little crooked and yes. it straightens the rug. Like, who knows what they were doing on that rug? It must have been awesome. But by the way, you want to see a sex scene in this movie. I feel like you want – like, the it gets so intense between them. I feel like you would want to see them really, like, go at it a little bit, you know? Yeah. Whatever it is, it must have been so fantastic that towards the end of the film when he finds out that young tough guy, Nino, is yeah. at her house and has been at her house every day for a week – Instead of thinking the obvious, he thinks, like, what was he doing at our house? I tried to make sense of it and got nowhere. Like, you can't even imagine. What do you think her big plan was? What do you think she was trying to pull? You know, at a certain point, there had to be another plan here. I don't think she on her own 
would have done anything. Right. And he on his own definitely wouldn't have done anything. No. So it's almost Bonnie and Clyde-ish, this idea of two people egging each other on. I think she was sort of waiting and hoping that something would cross her path. But don't you think that he's a guy who is full of hubris, right? He's the number one salesman. He knows he can figure out everything. And I, I, I love this idea of um, we all have it. If I was to commit a murder, I would do this. Or I, or if I was to do a robbery, I would do this. And I can outsmart the smartest people. And, and that's what gets him kind of caught up in it. He's so challenged by can he do this that he's not thinking about the actual consequences, which is why I love the scene where he gets back to his house. The plan has gone off as perfectly as it can be. And he starts walking, he doesn't hear his footsteps, and he has that monologue about he's a dead man walking. And in that moment, the idea, the fun of it, that you know, that we all have, like, oh, if I was gonna rob this bank, or if I was gonna do this, that finally goes away and he's stuck with the stark reality of what have I done? And now I'm in it. I think you're exactly right. I think he's in love with his own ego. Yes. More than he's in love with Barbara Stanwyck. Absolutely. When you listen to the way that he talks to her. He talks to her like he's a fictional character. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In their very first scene, he's a little he's a little bit softer. He's a little nervous around her at the beginning. He's like stuttering about insurance. But also he is very aggressive in the way that he treats her house. He comes in, throws that hat on a counter, feeds her goldfish. I'm like, dude, did you even know when that goldfish ate last? You're going to kill that goldfish. Don't go to someone else's house and feed their goldfish. Let's play one of the bits from that interaction where their flirtation gets crazy, and you almost sense that he's stepped into a role at this point, at the end of meeting her. Oh, this is one of my—I think I know what this scene yeah. is. It's my favorite scene. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. <laughs> I mean... 8.30 tomorrow evening, man. That's what I suggested. Will you be here, too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. And it's that. He gets that last line, and you hear his voice shift from the very beginning of that conversation yeah. to the end. He's a little softer with some pauses. Yeah. By the end, he's, like, stepped into this role of, oh, I'm a cool guy. You know, the, even the idea at a certain point when his boss, who's played fantastically by Edward G. Robinson, I love... I love this performance, the little man in his stomach. It, it, it's great. But even when he's offered this job to kind of work for a little less money, I think he's turning it down because, and yes, he's in the middle of a, a murder at this point, but I also think he would never work behind a desk because he doesn't think of himself like that. He doesn't want to be that guy. He wants to be this guy, the salesman. Yeah, and we see it in the production design, you know, because we get this really deliberate introduction to where he works. Mm-hmm. We see this grid of desks beneath and, like, this hellscape, this lower area where everybody's just kind of a drone. Very he, apartment-esque in a way. Very apartment-esque, but he is up at the top. He walks around the perimeter almost like a god, and we're always up there with him in the yeah. shadows going over his face. He feels himself above everybody. And by the way, I pulled a clip of that scene just so we could hear an amazing Edward G. Robinson monologue about how awesome 
an insurance salesman claim investigator is. <laughs> now look, Walter, the job I'm talking about takes brains and integrity. It takes more guts than there is in 50 salesmen. It's the hardest job in the business. Yeah, but it's still a desk job. I don't want to be nailed to a desk. Desk job? Is that all you can see in it? Just a hard chair to park your pants on from nine to five, huh? Just a pile of papers to shuffle around and five sharp pencils and a scratch pad to make figures on. Maybe a little doodling on the side. Well, that's not the way I look at it, Walter. To me, a claims man is a surgeon. That desk is an operating table. And those pencils are scalpels and bone chisels. And those papers are not just forms and statistics and claims for compensation. They're alive. They're packed with drama, with twisted hopes and crooked dreams. A claims man, Walter, is a, is a, is a doctor and a bloodhound and a... Who? Okay, hold on a minute. A claims man is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. And you want to tell me you're not interested. You don't want to work with your brains. All you want to work is with your finger on the doorbell for a few bucks more a week. There's a name on your phone. Great <laughs> monologue again and just shows both of those two scenes, the amazing writing. I am a huge Billy Wilder fan. And, you know, it's interesting. He often collaborated with Charles Brackett, right? Uh, some of his best films are a collaboration with him. But Charles Brackett wouldn't do this movie because he did not like the subject matter which is a crazy idea, like, that it was a little bit more puritanical to me. Like, I don't want to work on something that is so... Murder. Yeah, I murder. Mean, and the trailer for Double Indemnity starts with the word murder in all capital letters. <sighs> it's murdery. But what you get is this kind of combination of Billy Wilder's sensibility, which I think you can kind of draw to as being very quick-witted and, and smart and funny, with Raymond Chandler. So Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder are working on this together, and they hate each other. I mean, they're not getting along in this process at all. Uh, apparently, Wilder claimed that he would torment Raymond Chandler by flaunting his womanizing ability in front of him because he knew that Chandler was a little sexually repressed. So behind the scenes, you have this, you know, this battle of wills. But I also think it probably made the best out of both of them, you know? Well, what I think is so funny is one of the things they were fighting about in their office on the Paramount lot, mm -hmm. which I love because it means that they that people there was, were always drinking at Lucy's, that Mexican restaurant. Oh, yeah, street. yeah. That is still there. Um, one of the things they'd always fight about is the Venetian blinds, which is why really? I love that Venetian blinds are such a big part of this movie. Yeah. But one of them would want them open, the other one would want them closed. And they would have, like, serious fighting memos about the Venetian blinds oh, in their office building. I mean, Raymond Chandler, to his point of view... He said that working with Billy Wilder was an agonizing experience and has probably shortened my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something funny, too, about Raymond Chandler, who comes from this world of writing these great hard-boiled crime fiction. You know, what we know of that is, is Raymond Chandler synonymous with that. Um, but when he's a, a neophyte, essentially, to Hollywood, you know, and he comes in and when they were like, we want to adapt this novel to the screen. And Chandler's like, yeah, I will only do it if you pay me $150 a week in salary. And then, like, you know, the head of the studio is like, well, we were going to pay you 750 <laughs> So, like, you know, just like a funny idea of, like, he's a real fish out of water coming into this world. But um, it also shows you how much he might have looked down on the work that went into a screenplay because he was thinking he could just write Double Indemnity over a weekend. And they're oh, like, really? no, this is going to be weeks and weeks and weeks of work. You're actually going to work on this with a person. You're going to you're going to give effort to it. But I think it's like Hollywood. Uh, give me five days. I'll turn out some crap. I'm kind of fascinated by a lot of things in this movie. And I want to talk to you about the first image that we see when the film starts. It's this man on crutches. And, you know, as you're seeing all the title cards go past, this man on crutches is getting closer and closer and closer to the screen. And I thought it was an interesting choice 
because clearly, at a certain point in the film, Fred McMurray uh, is duplicating Barbara Stanwyck's husband and pretending to be on crutches, and he's on crutches, and this is the kind of, the whole plot of the movie revolves around it. But I just thought it was an interesting image to open up with, because it's provocative in the fact that it's like, oh, what is that? But it means nothing when you're first seeing it. It's an, it's. I don't know what you thought that image is representing. Is it foreshadowing or is it showing like uh, someone who's hobbled? If it, it meant feels anything? sort of like all of it. I mean, it's coming toward us, you right. know, it, which makes it threatening. It ends right. up filling up the entire frame. I mean, by the time you get directed by Billy Wilder on on this lens, he's filled up most of it. He's almost made the entire screen black with his own yeah. shadow. But he's walking towards you at this pace that's. I was thinking of Michael Myers watching. I was like, it's just coming at you and you can't do anything about it. And when you put that image in the context of where it fits in the film, this man on crutches, what it is when the one time we see it is that's the walk that he does when he crutches down the very center of the train to go to the back where he's going to jump off and fake um, Dietrich's death. But it's also him kind of going to his own death because when he's on that train, when he's making that decision, when they're going to go through it, that's a death march for himself that leads to everything that happens. If he had mm. stopped during that march, we'd have a happy ending. Maybe. Well, he did still kill somebody on that march. Oh, he that's already, true. You're right. Yeah, he, he already yeah, he already had I mean, <laughs> but it's maybe the walk to the electric chair. And, you know, in the same way, like he's murdered someone and now he is walking to his death. You know, it's almost like that's his like perp walk if you, I don't know, maybe I'm that's reading true. too much into it. But like, no, you, but you're also raising a good point. I mean, noir is known for femme fatales, you mm-hmm. know, and Barbara Stanwyck is an ultimate femme fatale. But when you really look at what happens in this movie, she doesn't kill anybody on screen. He kills two people. She doesn't really technically kill anybody. And maybe the worst she ever did to her husband's first wife is she just left a bunch of windows open. And passively let the wind kill her. Well, yes, but I will say she did raise a gun to Fred McMurray and shoot him. Uh, and she, her, her real defining moment is she can't pull the trigger again. I mean, she's not. She, she definitely gets a gun. I I'm not saying she's a Mother Teresa. <laughs> I'm just saying. I hear you. I, I was wondering though why. She carries the gun in a um, cloth, you know, which is sort of the, the traditional way that you to not get fingerprints on it. And she hides the gun under a couch cushion. And then when Fred McMurray is kind of confronting her and saying, like, you know what? I'm getting off this train. You're going to take the fall for your husband. And I'm getting out of here because I'm the smart one and you're the dumb one. He turns. I'm so his, smart. I'm telling you my whole plan right now. Exactly. The 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 traditional uh, flaw. James Bonds. <laughs> and uh, – but she then uses that gun to shoot him. And that's why I go back to that idea. What do you think her original plan was? She's bringing that gun down to not get fingerprints on it. But then she does use that gun. She shoots him. But she also has her boyfriend, her daughter's ex, coming up to the house. There's a lot going on in this plan that I would love to have just seen. I mean, I don't think it's a flaw in any way. I just am curious to know what she is doing in this. What was her grand scheme? I wonder you know, carrying it in the cloth is interesting because one of the things that the censors really cared about, and we'll talk a little bit more about like a censor Joe Breen who mm-hmm. had a huge role in sh- trying to influence whether or not this film could even exist. They had a line in the film where Fred McMurray tells her, hey, don't handle that policy without putting gloves on, meaning like don't touch your husband's okay. insurance policy that he's supposed to like have and you don't know about right. with gloves on. And the censors made them cut that line because the human populace hadn't totally caught on to fingerprint technology yet. Oh, And he wow. was like, we don't want people to know that that's one of the ways the cops find you. Because Bream, when he, he 
He first read the idea for the script, like in the 30s, yeah. when the novel was first uh, written as kind of like in installments in a magazine right. because it was based on a true crime, which I'll talk about in a second. Yeah. But he read this idea for this film and he was like, he called it, quote, a blueprint to murder. And he was terrified people would watch Double Indemnity and then go kill their husbands. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, in many respects, it is. I mean, the only reason why they get caught is because that little man that lives within Edward G. Robinson's stomach. It, like, it's a perfect plan that only gets defeated because of the brilliance of Keys. And I want to see a Keys movie. Let's see more Detective Keys. I mean, he's not a detective. He's an insurance agent. But, like, I, I'm all in now. I want to see more movies about insurance salesmen after that speech. I'm, I'm real pumped up about it. Yeah, I mean, I love that Edward G. Robinson didn't even want to do this film because it was a supporting part. And he was a star. And right. he was a star known for, like, these tough guy kind of roles. Right. And it's, I mean, when you can come in and, like, steal scenes away from these other two amazing actors, which he does, like, he brings so much heart to all of his scenes that I love him. But to your point of, like, plans, what I love in a movie is when they lay out a plan or when you see a plan go off perfectly, you know, mm -hmm. like, X to Y to Z, and they do it, and they have that moment that you're talking about where he thinks he's done it all perfectly. And then Edward G. Robinson is like, Oh, wait, but if he had a broken leg, why didn't he file that claim? And yeah. you realize, oh, you we we were suckered. We thought the plan was perfect. Too. Yeah, because you'll always leave something. It's just the little it's, – it's the hair, it's the fiber, it's something. And that's why I think this movie works so well because it's such a smart film. The criminals are smart. The people who are investigating are smart. Everyone – is working to their highest capabilities, which is always the most fun to watch. I think that's that's why a movie like Ocean's Eleven, the uh, the first one, you know, it's fun to watch people who are good at their job do the thing. And then when you get to, you know, sequels and stuff, or whenever you see a movie where the the plans don't fully come together, you know, I love the Prestige as well. Like. It, there's something just beautiful about a, a well-orchestrated plan that fools the audience and you're in on it a little bit, but you're like, I didn't see that. I didn't get that. And there's a difference between smart and perfect. Right. You know, we were talking about this with Bonnie and Clyde. Like, they weren't smart, but they were pretty good. And, yeah. and it was nice watching them screw up a bit. Yeah. These guys are smarter than Bonnie and Clyde, but they're still not perfect. You no. know, she gets caught by her by her stepdaughter trying her black veil on yeah. a little bit early before her husband's dead. And that's why, you know, again, like I get so disappointed by these action movies where the tough guy is just great and like survives all the bullets right. and is stronger than anyone and smarter than everybody. Watching them screw up is great. Do you think one of the reasons why this movie works so well is because our three leads are all playing against type? You know, so Fred McMurray is a guy who up until this point is playing the good guy, the nice guy, the sweet guy, the Disney guy, or maybe the Disney guy is later. Uh, and then you have... He was a saxophone player. Like, he got, was a saxophone player who got spotted by talent scouts. Oh, and really? And he didn't want to do this movie at all. Like, when... Uh, when Billy Wilder came to him with this idea, he tried to talk him into it. And he was like, listen, you don't want to just do comedies with Carol Lombard and Ginger Rogers. And Fred McMurray said, but I do. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and you see this turn on him. Edward G. Robinson, of course, you know, is a classic gangster. That, that, you know, that 1940s, you know, gangster or 1920s, I guess. You know, he is playing against type, a real good guy. And then you have Barbara Stanwyck, who didn't even really want to do this part either because she thought that the, the character was essentially, you know, irredeemable. Yeah, she said she didn't want to go home with that character at night. And Billy Wilder also had to egg her into it. And he said, are you an actress or a mouse? Wow. 
I love, I just love that. I love the idea that when you cast people in different roles, you, I think a lot of times people are like, well, that will take you out of something, you know, that will, that will, but in many respects, you see somebody in a different light. And I think it's actually more engaging because they're putting you on a different footing. Yeah. Um, There's something about switching perspectives almost like, mm -hmm. You imagine if you've always played the good girl in a movie against a bad person. You might have interesting thoughts about the people who played the bad people against you. And maybe you can see what you would do differently. You were saying this is based on a real murder. And I knew that, but I didn't know the details of it. There's some gory details to this murder. Okay. Well, so the woman in question, her name is Ruth Snyder. Mm -hmm. And in 1928, she seduces an insurance agent. They murder her husband. They get caught. Um, and it was a big deal. Like the newspapers were obsessed with her. They were obsessed with the crime. They were obsessed with her to the point that they were running articles in the newspaper like Gordon rules that she can use face powder smoking in doubt. Wow. And where she becomes macabre famous is um, she gets executed in the electric chair. And a bunch of reporters are invited to watch her get executed. And one of the guys from the New York Daily News – our hearts are going out to the New York Daily News right now. If yeah. you heard about the news cuts from Tronk, who's evil – um, he smuggled in a camera in his pant leg and it was connected to his ankle. And so at the moment when they electrocute Ruth Snyder, he takes a little secret picture with the, with a little wow. button that he had. And they put this picture of her mid electrocution, like her, she's a little fuzzy. She's like radiating yeah. on the front cover of the New York daily news. Cause you know, they're, Whoa. they're still known for their front yeah. covers today. And it just becomes this giant deal. You really see. A woman death. You can find that picture right now on Wikipedia if anybody wants to Google it. And one of the guys there is another um, New York reporter. His name is James Kane, And he got really obsessed with this story too. And so he turned this into a novel in the 30s. And he became like one of those hard-bitten, also kind of Chandler-y type novelists, even though Chandler hated being linked to him. Like one of the things that he said about the way that Kane wrote is he said he was, quote, every kind of writer I detest – a faux naïf, a proust in overalls, a dirty little boy with a piece of chalk and a board fence <laughs> and nobody looking and that his dialogue was like a bad high school play. So that's where the novel of Double Indemnity comes from, is this real murder that this guy reported on. Well, and, and also speaking of the power of awesome reporters, Billy Wilder used to be a reporter back when he lived in, in Europe. And one of the jobs that Billy Wilder would do when he was like a baby cub reporter is his editor would send him out to do murder stories as well. Everybody loves a good murder story. And he would interview both the parents of the victim and the parents of the murderer. And it was learning about the mentality of there are people who love murderers that gave him this complexity that he took with him when he became a screenwriter. Like oh, he got wow. to understand human empathy that way. I wanted to play something that has a little bit of a connection to what we were just talking about, which is, of course, the death penalty. And I think we both pulled this clip from uh, Billy Wilder talking about an alternate ending to Double Indemnity. Have you ever shot more than one ending for a film? Yes. Like in Double Indemnity, I had an ending where Mr. McMurray was executed in the gas chamber, and there was a kind of a thing between him and Eddie Robinson, who was watching it. Then, as I was proceeding with the picture, I found a scene uh, uh, where he tries to, after Robinson realizes that McMurray is the murderer and to, wants to go to the elevator and kind of get into his car and go to Mexico or something. And uh, he collapses there, you know, and uh, can't even light the match anymore the way he always did. And uh, in the distance you heard already the siren of the police uh, 
car or the ambulance, so you knew what the outcome is going to be. And I ended it there because it was very anticlimactic. You know, he didn't need now. We knew that he was guilty. It's so great because I think one of the cool things about this movie is how it just ends. I feel like that that's a more traditional ending, what he just pitched out there. I just like how it just, you can make your own conclusion. There's nothing more to say, there's nothing more to do. And I guess that was a leftover from the actual story that was yeah. being told. Yeah, and I love that because it also kind of gives you this sense that in the production code era, one of the things that you had to do if you were going to have bad people doing bad things mm-hmm. is you had to watch them get punished. They really couldn't live at the end of it. And so I think that's part of why he felt like he had to take it initially to watching Fred McMurray die, too, oh, wow. just to make sure there was no doubt about it. Also that he, like, touches on that whole thing of um, Fred McMurray always lighting matches with one hand. Oh, yeah. Which I love because you see him do it sort of weak and clumsy in the very opening that sort of circles back to the end where he's, like, weak and he's been shot. And you do the framing device where he tells you. Right up at the beginning, he has the balls that, like, say, Red and Shawshank doesn't, where he's like, I'm a murderer. Hey, I'm a murderer. I murder people. That's what I did. I'm guilty. Right at the top, you're going to care about my character anyway. And you see his blood stain get bigger and bigger every time they cut back to him in this framing device, which is also great. And I also love, by the way, how, like, lighting matches for people becomes this thing in, like, so many noirs. I'm thinking of, you know, Lauren Bacall having her cigarette lit for her by Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. And how that's just this thing. I mean, I've never smoked and I don't want to smoke, but... I don't know what your lighting cigar moment is for you if you don't smoke. Oh. Can somebody hand me a stick of gum, like all sexy? It's it's always impressive when someone does flick you a stick of gum. I mean, it is you know it's like they're ready for you. It's like uh, having yeah. a bathroom attendant. They know what you want before you even need it. By the way, you could hear it from that clip that you picked out that Billy Wilder is not from America. So yes. maybe we should talk about Billy Wilder just for a second because yeah. we're going to be talking about Billy Wilder a lot. I mean, Billy Wilder is tied for second place with Alfred Hitchcock for having. The most films in the AFI Top 100. Wow. He's got four. He has this one. He's got Sunset Boulevard. He's got Some Like It Hot. And he's got The Apartment. So we let's just talk about Billy Wilder. Yeah, for sure. So Billy Wilder is born in Vienna. Um, he's Jewish. Um, most of the people that he knew ended up dying in Auschwitz. Oh, really? And uh, one of the things he says is that he went back to Austria uh, when he was older. And he was walking on a street that his mom had used to push him in, in a baby carriage. And the baby in the street is now named Billy Wilder after him because he was so famous. And he says, you know, but if I had stayed here, I wouldn't be here to tell this tale and they wouldn't be naming a street after me. And his real birth name, by the way, was not Bill. It was Samuel. But he, as a kid, was really obsessed with Wild Bill Hickok. Okay. And so he just took on that name when he was little. Um, what he ends up doing is uh, watching a lot of movies as he's, when he's a kid. He loves Buster Keaton. I mean, he says, he says this of Buster Keaton. I liked Keaton best because he was unsentimental. I learned from him that you should never laugh at your own jokes if you want other people to laugh at them. Oh, wow. And so he starts making movies in um, Europe. He realizes really when Hitler starts rising, he leaves fairly early on in the 30s that he's got, he knows he's got to get out of here. He was already pretty successful in Europe, but here he has to start from scratch-ish. He's poor. He's living in the Chateau Marmont, but not in like a glamorous way. He has okay. a roommate. The roommate is Peter Lorre. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're both really broke. So at night for dinner, they would share like a can of Campbell's soup. But they were both people who had fled Europe when they knew that it was getting bad. I mean, Peter Laurie had been a big actor over there, and he was specifically told by Goebbels, who liked his work, like, hey, you should probably go on an extended tour, elbow, elbow. And so this is, they, they build up Hollywood from the beginning as immigrants. It's beautiful. 
There's a great book that I read when I was much younger called Conversations with Billy Wilder that Cameron Crowe wrote. And it's basically a long book of just great conversations. I want to revisit it. I still have it on my bookshelf. But I remember being fascinated by that book as well, just like kind of his style and what he learned. And he's a great storyteller too. Yeah, and you can tell that Cameron was obsessed with him. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about this a bit more when we get to the apartment. But when Cameron Crowe does Jerry Maguire, he casts Renee Zellweger because she reminds him of Shirley MacLaine in the apartment. And then he begs Billy Wilder to be in the movie. He's like, because, you know, there's like a cameo of an old dude. He's like begging him and Billy Wilder is like, no. But they become buddies. (laughs) By the way, speaking of cameos, uh, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier uh, about Raymond Chandler. You know, he has a cameo in Double Indemnity. There's a very small scene. It's, uh, I think, one of the first scenes where Fred McMurray is speaking to uh, Keyes. He leaves his office, and we're talking about that precipice above all the other workers. He is one of the guys sitting in a chair that Fred McMurray just walks right by. But, yeah, so it's the only time Raymond Chandler was ever on screen in a film. And uh, a nice little little cameo (laughs) moment. You can see it on YouTube. And, by the way, uh, just to bring those two threads together— Here is a thing that Wilder said about Chandler as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And putting this in context of everything that Wilder went through, he said, there was a lot of Hitler in Chandler. (laughs) Okay, can I say one pet peeve? I know that this is not a show about nitpicking, and this movie is a great film, et cetera, et cetera. But I will say I was very excited that this is a Los Feliz murder mystery because I live in Los Feliz, and I was like, oh! Where are they going? And I have to say, nothing is true. That house is not in Los Feliz. Uh, I went to go look it up today. It's on Quebec Avenue. It's still standing. It looks amazing. And when she asked to be dropped off at Franklin and Vermont, I, that's not Franklin and Vermont, goddammit. I know what it looks like, and it doesn't look that different. I was so angry, so and I angry. I there was a bowling alley. We don't have a bowling alley. Ah, there's probably uh, one. There's uh, probably one. Well, the bowling alley was what? It was like, what did you say, third and western? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's kind of close to my hood. There's okay. no bowling alley there. There's a gas station. I mean, okay, maybe there was a <laughs> there bowling alley. There could have been a bowling alley. I'm talking about landmarks. There, uh, there the was- The grocery store. Yes. Was uh, a grocery store they built for the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, this kind of, this kind of segues into it. This movie, you know, comes out in 44 during World War II. Uh, there was war rationing on, which mm-hmm. is why I'm thinking about it now. And so they had to have these police guards at the grocery store, at yes. the state grocery store, to make sure nobody broke in to steal these neatly labeled giant sections. It's like, here's a giant section of Macaroni, pears. yeah. Here is a giant section of, like, asparagus, as though it's the only thing they have in cans. But this movie is set in 1938. They set it pre-war. It's like they jump forward – just six years. And I've always thought that was interesting. Like oh, that is interesting. That they don't set it during wartime. Well, I guess, you know, because why complicate the story with anything else? Um, one of the things that you will find is in some of the publicity stills, you'll see police officers with Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray in that supermarket. And it's not because of anything in the film. It simply was because they were there to protect the food. <laughs> I guess food is worth a double – is there a double indemnity on food getting smashed with a can opener on the floor? <laughs> well, now, double indemnity is a term that's really just coined from this film. I mean, clearly it's an insurance protocol, but it's not like a uh, – I feel like it's a, 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 a phrase that is now – that was popularized simply by this film. You know, it's like we wouldn't know the nitty-gritty of, you know, insurance terms, but I feel like it's interesting how something can have such a – 
kind of big effect on our culture, you know, like uh, yeah. that, that term in particular. I mean, there's a Simpsons episode called Dumbbell Indemnity. Oh, <laughs> we're going to hear a clip from it? Or? We're not, actually. We're going to hear a clip from a different Simpsons episode called Dial N for Nerder. There is one other thing. Found this bone tied to a string. Almost like someone was playing a prank on him. You like pranks, don't you, Dingus? I like pranks. Everyone likes pranks. E- even Dr. Hibbert. I hate pranks. Oh, this is amazing. I am consistently impressed by the amount of references on The Simpsons. Um, you know, this movie is so kind of wildly popular when it comes out that um, a handful of years later, uh, they released an audio drama of Double Indemnity where they reprised their roles um, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. And I wanted to play just a clip of that for you. The entire thing is on YouTube. It's about 44 minutes or so. But it's just interesting that, A, they wouldn't just take the soundtrack from the film, and that, B, they wanted to get it out to a bigger audience. So, like, we got to get it on radio. Like, we have to, like, yeah, 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 sure, it's in the cinema, but we have to get it out on radio. Will uh, you be here, too? I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anchor? I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. Good afternoon, Mr. Dickinson. I can still remember the smell of honeysuckle all along the street. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I'm surprised this movie is not often remade. You know, because it, it's timely. It, you can. It's a great story. And as a matter of fact, you know, Robert Redford was attached at one point in the 70s to do it. But... It never got off the ground. I wonder why people don't touch this movie. I wonder. I mean, the closest I can think of is they did um, Body Heat okay. with Kathleen Turner, which was yeah. a lot like it. But because that movie comes out, you know, in the modernish era, they could do something that Double Indemnity doesn't do, which is they let Kathleen Turner win. But I guess this idea of murdering your spouse is something that is commonplace in, you know, made-for-TV movies. I mean, Lifetime is basically the double indemnity channel. I mean, there's so many of these, you know, these sensational kind of pulpy stories that I guess are often told. So maybe the it's cliche to tell this one because we've seen so many versions of it uh, done I wonder. You know, I mean, one of the things I also wonder, and, that, you know, this is sort of dark, and I'll just say it really fast, mm-hmm. is like most of these movies wind up with the husband getting killed or like the plot to kill the husband. Yeah. When in real life, it's only mostly mostly wives who get killed. But uh, we just we yeah, yeah, that happens. We have dead wife movies, but that's yeah. such a separate thing. Well, you know, speaking of dead wives, dead husbands, I wanted to ask you about the code. Could you not show a dead body at this point in filmmaking? Because he chokes uh, the husband in the car, but you don't see it fully. You don't see the body. You never see the body. Yeah, what you do instead is you have the great just hold on Barbara Stanwyck's face where you watch her do nothing. Oh, it's a great – I actually compared that to the classic Norman Bates shot in like Psycho where they're just kind of like Norman Bates sitting in the sanitarium at the end and, and her just – there's so much going on, but there's nothing going on. It's great. Yeah, nothingness is so terrifying. I mean there's – there are rules about it. Like you definitely couldn't show – a naked body? You couldn't even have, like, the silhouette of a naked body. You couldn't have a James Bond sort oh, of wow, commercial okay. introduction. I mean, Breen, the production code head, had a lot of opinions on this from the beginning. And, in fact, in lieu of a negative review, because I actually couldn't find one. Right. Um, I'm sure they exist. I just couldn't find them. There was more of, like, an oral campaign against the film by okay. a woman named Kate Smith. She was a singer who had a radio show. Probably because it was a radio show. I couldn't find that much right. record of what she was saying. But she was telling people not to go see it because she called it scabrous. 
But Breen had so many opinions on this movie, like before it was made, while it was getting made, he had a lot of specific things. He said, like, this bath towel must properly cover Phyllis and must certainly go below her knees in that very sexy opening shot of her on the railing. He got a little upset about what he called, quote, flimsy house pajamas. And wow. you're right, like, when um, when they move the body to the tracks, he was like, we don't want to see that much body. He made them show less body. Well, it's kind of combining sex and violence. And, I mean, that's what we see, you know, again, with Bonnie and Clyde, so much of that. I mean, you know, back in the time when this was out, that would have been mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, and I like that it's really sex and not love. Right. You know, I pulled two clips of Barbara Stanwyck telling Walter that she loves him. Mm-hmm. And one of them you definitely know she's faking. And I want your opinion on the second one, because the okay. second one is their final I okay. love you. Well, that suits me fine. This is it, Walter. I'm shaking like a leaf, but it's straight down the line for both of us. I love you, Walter. Goodbye. So that, in your mind, faking. Definite faking. Oh, I talk like this? I talk so fake. <laughs> Don't tell me it's because you've been in love with me all this time. No, I never loved you, Walter, not you or anybody else. I'm rotten to the heart I used you, just as you said. Not all you ever meant to me. Until a minute ago. When I couldn't fire that second shot. I never thought that could happen to me. Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. I'm not asking you to buy, just hold me close. My gut is that she knows she's caught, but at the same time, when you look at her eyes, I feel like you you buy that she's connected. Maybe she's connected to him because he's just as duplicitous as she is, and she respects him finally at the end. Yeah, there's a wetness in her eyes that isn't there when she's saying that her husband bores her, hates her, doesn't yeah. let her buy hats. There's a lot of hat talk in oh, this Oh, a lot of hat too. talk. She can buy three hats in one in one shopping spree. A lot of hat talks. I love the root, the the ruse that she uses to show up at Neff's house when he stormed out the first yeah. time. And she's like, you forgot your hat. Clearly not holding a hat. Clearly we saw him grab the hat. Yeah. They make a big point of watching him grab the hat, put it on, go drink beer at a drive-up I love beer that. restaurant. Yeah. Where's that at? Because usually in movies I feel like they make a character do forget something. Right. Like, oh, I did forget my wallet. Now we had to see each other again. But the idea that he early on is like, it's an excuse. It's a screenwriter's excuse. Don't use it as that. Just use it as her excuse. Put the excuse on her and him playing along. There's so much great stuff in this film. Um, And I'd be remiss if we did not talk a little bit about Lola, the daughter, who I think is fantastic and also playing into this whole other side of the film, which is sort of, this is where I feel like at a certain point she was going to become a little bit more involved in this plan as if she was the real master manipulator. Did you like her or you did not? No, I didn't like her. I was actually, in fact, the scene where she's telling him how awful Barbara Stanwyck is, she has that to me, too studio-trained elocution where she's speaking like a false person. There's a mm-hmm. way that, like, young heroines speak in early movies that feels like they all had the same teacher right. who made them talk in this way that is so phony. Do you know who that nurse was? No, who? Phyllis. I tried to tell my father, but I was just a kid then. He wouldn't listen to me. Six months later, she married him, and I, I kind of talked myself out of the idea she could have done anything like that. But now it's all back again. Now that something's happened to my father, too. But I I like her character being in this movie, however, because I think she helps underscore what a self-delusional dummy Fred McMurray is, even to himself. He's like, 
you know, I was just hanging out with the kid, taking her to dinners, just, you know, to take yeah. care of her. You're like, no, you're doing it because she's hot. Well, that I, I guess maybe what I'm saying is, I don't know if I like the performance as much as I like the character and what that, those scenes were really well done to me. Because I feel like that's when you start to realize, oh yeah, like he is, he's just a guy who wants to be the hero. Exactly. And, and so I think seeing that was really interesting. And I also was wondering, is he hot? It feels to me a little bit like Lola, I don't know if she's flirting with him, but she's giving him something, or is it his perspective of the scenario? Because he's telling the story a little bit too, you know, like, because she's in the car and she's like waiting for him. And if that felt a little flirty that she like jumped in his car instead of walking down to the uh, the spot. And in my mind, I could even buy the fact that he's lying about that. She wasn't in the car. Maybe he passed her on the street and picked her up. That's such an interesting point because she seems like such a phony character. But yeah. you're right. It is his telling of it. And she – I mean, when your dad has just died, what are you doing hanging out every night a week with the insurance investigator who showed yeah. up by your house? What does she think she's getting out of this? He could be so too dumb to even let the movie ask that question. Yeah. I like that. Also, I hate, though, that the happy ending is that maybe she gets back together with her this, clearly asshole boyfriend. Yeah, a crazy abusive boyfriend. Not cool. So, Amy, I wanted to bring in somebody interesting to the podcast to talk a little bit about noir. And I couldn't think of a better writer than Ed Brubaker. You might know Ed as uh, a really accomplished comic book writer. He has written uh, Captain America. He created The Winter Soldier. He is also a Harvey Award and Eisner Award winner multiple times on both. But he uh, brings a real sense of noir to his comic books. Uh, Criminal and Fade Out and Fatal are all these kind of – uh, modern day noir. Not that it takes place in modern day, but it it kind of tackles noir in a present tense. We're not looking back. It's not Raymond Chandler. It's not Dashiell Hammett. You know, it's somebody that's, you know, right now writing of the now. And I thought it might be very interesting to talk to somebody who has a perspective on what it is to write that type of material and to also be a TV writer, which Ed is. And you know, Paul, I think it's in his DNA because Brubaker's uncle actually adapted a Raymond Chandler book himself for the movies in the 1940s. He's just got noir, like, pumping in his veins, man. Well, let's talk to Ed right now. So, Ed, talk to us a little bit about your familiarity with Double Indemnity. Does this fall, like, at the top of your list of, like, noir films? Yeah, I mean, I think this and Out of the Past and DOA are probably like my quintessential noirs, you know, that I yeah. would have a list of like another 25 that I would recommend. It was one of those movies that really sucked me in because partly because it was the guy from My Three Sons. Yeah. Which is like, how is he supposed to be like a tough guy? But he's talking like a tough guy and his hair is kind of curly. And so I remember seeing it at like eight or nine years old and. That was probably the first time I ever saw Raymond Chandler's name or, you know, was aware of, of you know, that kind of world at all. And I think that it helped create sort of a lifelong obsession. And Raymond Chandler, this is like one of his first Hollywood jobs. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, there's a great story. Um, Wilder actually had never read Chandler. He'd read the book and wanted to make it. And they brought the movie to him, I think, and he wanted to do it. But he wanted to work with Kane. But Kane was on a contract at Fox 
And so someone showed him some Raymond Chandler short stories, and he was like, oh, let's try to get this guy. He's got a really good descriptive sense. And even like 60 years later, he remembered like specific sentences that Chandler had written that oh, had wow. drawn him in, like, there's nothing emptier than an empty pool. <laughs> like, just, you know, he felt like he really had like a sense of L.A. Chandler had fought in World War One and was like, I think he was an American citizen who lived in like Canada and then went to school in England. And so he was like a British schoolboy kind of guy. But but also American, and he was married to a much older woman, and he worked as an executive at an oil company, which is how he ended up in L.A. back when, which ties into Double Indemnity, oh, which yeah. is like the the husband is, you know, an oil guy whose business is not going so well in the 40s. But back in the 20s and the 30s, L.A. was like, you know, you see pictures of the beach back then, and it's just oil rigs everywhere. It's funny you to know. think of Chandler as a Canadian by way of, like, a European school, because he yeah, does he fought, feel— He fought in the Canadian Army in World War One. Oh, wow. Cause I but feel, that means yeah. he has, like, this foreign view of L.A. It's, it's really—I think it's really cool in a way, because he does— like, a lot of great writers always view everything as kind of like an outsider anyway. But there's, like, a famous story from, like, the late 40s— around this time period where he was at some L.A. restaurant with, another, with like, Faulkner or somebody and a couple of, like, women. And J. Edgar Hoover and his secret lover were at another table, and Hoover wanted Chandler to come over and have a drink with them, and Chandler told the waiter to tell Hoover to fuck himself. <laughs> it's, Whoa. Like it's in one of Chandler's biographies. It's like, wow. But, um, oh, my God, the tweet storm that would start today. Yeah. <laughs> Chandler is not on Twitter. He doesn't, uh, <laughs> he, but he would not survive today, that's for sure. Well, he, All of his weird relationships with teenage fans. Oh, uh, really? I did I'm not sorry. know. i Go on. Yeah, no, Chandler, late in life after his wife died, maintained a lot of long-distance, like, love letter and late-night phone call relationships with, like, there was some, like, girl in England who was, like, 18 years old. or something. He was, like, 60-something, and she wrote a book about it, like, her secret love affair with Raymond Chandler, yeah, like, so- when she was young, and he was, like, at the end of his days, because he's such a strange dude. Like, he's just such an uptight guy in general. Like, all the stories from Billy Wilder about during making this movie are, like, they just did not get along, and... It all came down to, like, his English schoolboy manners. He was, like, first off, he was, like, dry. Like, he's an alcoholic, obviously. Right. But he sobered up for a number of years. And, like, while he was making this movie, he was sober. And Wilder would go out. They would go out to lunch. And Wilder would have, like, a couple of martinis and and see Chandler looking at him funny. And so he would have another one just to piss Chandler off. Wow. And then Wilder would get phone calls. Like, Wilder was, like, you know, a young director in Hollywood in the 40s, like an immigrant. And, you know, he had, like, young girls calling the office and stuff. And he's, like, flirting with young girls and making date plans and stuff. And Chandler's just, like, sitting there waiting for him to get back to work. (laughs) So, like, he wrote all this stuff up in, like, a letter of complaint. And also Wilder would carry around a swagger stick, you know, like, like, like the Colonel on Hogan's Heroes. Oh, really? Yeah, he carried around a swagger stick. He claimed it was just so he had something to do. But it was, like, an so when he would (laughs) be talking about, apparently this is how they would work is, like, uh, Chandler would sit on the couch and like take notes or listen, and Wilder would just kind of pace around, and they would talk about the scenes. But I'm I'm back. I need to backtrack. So when they first brought in Chandler, he'd never written a script before or even seen a screenplay. Which you know, back in the days, right. like until the internet, none of us like yeah. very few of us had actually seen what a script format looked like. So they gave him the book, and he said, "Oh, this is a this is a piece of crap." He hated the book. 
but give me a screenplay and I'll see what I can do. And so he took the screenplay home and came back like five days later with like 80 pages of screenplay. He had adapted the book basically and just used all the dialogue from the book and moved it around and stuff. And he gave it to Wilder and it was like an 85-page script or right. something. And Wilder was like, no, and like threw it in the wastebasket. He's like, we're writing this thing together and this is how screenwriting works. And oh, so wow. it helped. I think it shaded the way Chandler thought about screenwriting as a profession in general because he basically thought that it wasn't an art. He thought that like Hollywood kind of gets too many people in the way of of the actual writer and that the writer's voice needs to be more important. Well, and then your uncle John Paxton begins to adapt his stuff like he adapts for One My Lovely into Murder My Sleep. Yeah, yeah. That was and that's actually Chandler's favorite depiction of of uh, Marlowe apparently because he said that's more how he saw Marlowe was like the kind of you know, the Dick Powell, you know. Oh, you were talking before about like a letter of resignation that Chandler wrote. Yeah. yeah. Weiler showed up one day for work and was just waiting for Chandler to show up. And then he called the guy running the the movie and he was like, Chandler's not here. What's going on? He's like, yeah, I'm just looking at this letter that he sent. He's resigning from the movie. And it was like a list of, I think it was like a 20 point list of complaints about Wilder. <laughs> but the ones that Wilder remembered was the stuff about the three martinis and the girls calling and the, the incessant waving of the swagger stick. And, and apparently the last straw was that they were working and the sun was glaring through the, this was like the Paramount lot, I right. think, and the sun was glaring through the Venetian blinds and he pointed past Chandler's face to the blinds and said, Ray, would you mind shutting those blinds? And he didn't say please. And that was apparently the last <laughs> fucking straw. So after that, Wilder said he was just like, he said, please in every single sentence. Ray, would you please move your legs so I can walk to the bathroom, please? Oh, he was just like overdoing it and just driving him insane. But yet the finished product comes out pretty it's amazingly amazing. well. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And I think I was watching it, you know, for this again, and I hadn't seen it in probably 10 or 15 years. And you still can't tell who wrote what. Right. There's a lot of dialogue where I'm like, oh, that's got to be Chandler. But then it's like, well, Wilder is so, his, his hands are all over everything. The only parts I'm, feel fairly certain are more Chandler are the voiceover part where he's telling the story because that feels more like narration, you know, and there's some of the lines that are just too poetic. But, but, but you wrote Fatal, which you wrote as a corrective to these film noir f- yeah, film Fatals. Yeah. Well, yeah, to some degree, which was funny because I was watching this and I was thinking so much like Double Indemnity in a way would be ripe for a modern retelling because we I would like to actually that. see more about her and how she became this person because there's that moment right before she, he kills her after she shot him where she realizes that she loves him and it's the first thing she's ever really felt in her life. And I was like, well, this is 1944. Like, what was the depression like for this woman? And what was, like, a woman's role in society like at that time? And I was like, holy shit, this could actually be an interesting miniseries, like a Mildred Pierce kind of. Start with that scene and go backwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I would love to see the story told from her point of view in a way. And that's what Fatale was kind of about was, like, you know, femme fatale is always just the cliche in a story, like the, the woman who's so hot that the man will do anything. And it's like, well, yeah, men are really stupid and will do anything. But... What is it about the woman side of the story that makes it more interesting? Like, how does how does she get to that point where she's like, Jesus Christ, there's no way out except for, like, seducing some guy and having him murder my husband? But so how do you make noir feel modern today and not, like, kitschy, not, like, all haircuts and suits? Um, I mean, I think noir being effective depends on how desperate 
the times feel. Like, I feel like noir could feel really right right now, you know, and ha- say we hit, like, another Great Depression. It's like that's what it grew out of was, like, Bonnie and Clyde and, you know, John Dillinger and these, these like, real people – when society gets to a point where the majority of people feel like the rich people are just getting everything and that society is completely unfair and the more that you actually see the way the world works, the more sort of desperate you become. And I think it's a, it's a kind of romanticism of like a Robin Hood kind of thing, like why are you willing to break the law for the right reasons? And then you add in like love and lust and desperation and like anybody can, you know, I was, when I was a teenager, I was like, it was the 80s, Reagan was president, we all thought the world was going to end, and I was really into punk rock and drugs, and we did lots of crazy stuff because we were like young and desperate, and it just felt like life was never going to really happen. You well, because you see yourself there. It's like the idea of Fred McMurray, it's like, oh, can he game the system? He's smarter. Like, yeah. it's, it's this person who's a little bit smarter, a little bit ahead of the curve. Oh, yeah. And no, like, and oh, every yeah. moment in during the, like, when when they're the train sequence is just riveting. Yeah. By the way, like how many scenes are even in this movie? Like I was watching and I'm like, wow, these scenes are like ten minutes long. A lot of them, but it's like everything almost goes wrong that time. Like she yeah. falls, he's talking to, you know, Edward G. Robinson right there, and it's like, and she's like, I got no time. I got to tell you now, and it's like. Uh, I'll I'll meet you in your office. No, it's fine. Yeah. I'll stay here. Yeah. And it's like, oh my god. And then. The, you know, he gets to the back of the train and there's the guy there who's just too talkative and he keeps looking <laughs> away from him. And it's like, yeah, that's not suspicious at all. I w- I've started to wonder, like, is this the first thriller on that level? Like, were there yeah. other movies that were this riveting in, by 1944 where it was just literally like the muse? I mean, Hitchcock, I guess, was starting to do stuff right. at that time period. But, but I was watching this and I'm like, literally – they're getting rid of the body and then they get back in the car and then the car won't start. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'd forgotten like by this point, like, wait, do they have to get out and push the car? Like, what is going to happen here? Because this is bad. No, it, And then he leans over and sees like magically starts to go. Like every time she's involved, everything feels like it's going to fly off the rails and then he takes control. It's a very interesting dynamic. Well, he's kind of narrating the story. Yeah. Because we were talking about this idea that this is his perspective of what happened, too. So maybe if it was just even told from her point of view, it would be an interesting story to tell. Well, and how weird is the whole relationship with the daughter, too? Like, oh, the daughter is yeah. just in his car, which I'm like, were I him and I came out and there was a teen girl in my car, I would be like, hey, um, I would walk back to the house. I'm like, hey, you're, I just want you to know this has nothing to do with me. Yeah. Your teen daughter is in my car. Please don't call the police on me. Like, yeah, he just gets in the car and drives like, her to, yeah. <laughs> this is where they're like 16. You can marry you. Yeah, Fine. exactly. <laughs> it's all yeah. good. But it's he, LA. I think he kind of liked that idea of being this person that would be attractive to this teenager as well. Like, you yeah, know, exactly. he, he wanted that. It made him feel good. I was starting to think about it. I'm like, he's, he's really a bad guy right. because nothing was wrong in his life, nope. except obviously he was alone. We know nothing about him. Yeah. Like, we, we learn nothing about him through the course of the story in the movie other than that he is obviously desperate enough for love that he's going to he's going to murder someone for it. Like I'm like it's did, did he go to war? Like what's his story? Well, let me ask you one question about you are, you know, you've written for TV, you write your own stuff. What is it like when someone obviously is a fan of yours and they want to bring you in to do what you do? 
but they also like Raymond Chandler. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, yeah, like I mean, is there? Is, do you do well, you, was do like, you sympathize with that? As I was like reading these like Billy Wilder interviews, I mean, there's a learning curve. You have to learn who in the room actually knows what they're saying or doesn't know what they're saying, or who's just saying something because they have their their boss is there and they have to be perceived to be having input, right? You know, and there's like you have to learn to have the confidence in yourself to push back instead of just agreeing with everything. One of the pilots I wrote, I remember I had gotten two conflicting pieces of advices from two successful showrunners. One said, just agree to everything, and then when you get the show sold, just make it what you want it to be. Yeah. And then the other one was like, never tell anybody that it's going to be something that it's not going to be. It's like you'll sit in a room and eight people are like, well, is it going to be funny? Is it going to be like moonlighting? And it's right. like, oh, yeah, it's totally going to be like moonlighting. And it's not going to be like moonlighting at all. Yeah. Like that person is going to be the person that makes sure your show doesn't get made. That's right. the guy yeah. who's going to be like, well, I heard it was going to – this isn't like moonlighting at all. You know? And so well, it's like, like you have, you to, have to figure that out, you know? So what's coming up for you? What can we uh, check you out in or what can you tell people? Uh Coming out next year on Amazon is Too Old to Die Young, which I co-created with Nicholas Reffin, and he directed the whole thing. It stars Miles Teller and John Hawks and Jenna Malone. And it sounds amazing. Fantastic with, yeah. actors. It is, it is intense. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably all I'm allowed to say. Yeah. And I have a book coming out in October called My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies. But, uh, yeah, that's the thing. I just finished writing the final pages of last night. So. Oh, congratulations. Celebration thumbs yeah. up. All right. We'll be on the lookout for that. <laughs> well, Ed, thank you so yeah, much Yeah, this for has been fascinating. In. Thanks so oh, much. Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. You know, so, Amy, the movie does take place in 1938, but released in 1944. So Whoa, I figured— Paul, are you going to hit us up with, with, with a little bit of year facts? Year facts. All right. Here's some facts of 1944. Uh, D-Day. Happened in 1944. That was a big, big deal. Yeah, double indemnity day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, IBM announced its first programmable calculator. Ooh, hey, Hal. I know, really setting the stage. I mean, who would have <laughs> guessed that the year double indemnity came out, 2001 was technically born in someone's mind. It bleeped on. Um, there are so many interesting uh, things happening this year, but one that was brought to our attention by our uh, intrepid producer, Josh. Josh. Is that the New York Times did not mention the word pizza until this year. What? That is 40 years after the first pizzeria came to New York. It took them 40 years to put pizza in print. And God damn it, that is not right. Say her name. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about this in popular culture, but the term gaslighting kind of was popularized by a movie that came out this year called Gaslight. And finally, um, this is another interesting fact. In 1944, Mary Babnick Brown became the first woman to have her hair used in the crosshairs of a military aircraft bomb site. Oh, uh, that's yeah, real hair? That's real hair, apparently. The hair had to fit strict criteria, such as being blonde, over 22 inches, and never being treated with chemicals or hot iron. So Mary Babnick Brown, let's see your biopic. Uh, that's a couple of facts from 1944. Double Indemnity, by the way, nominated for, I believe, seven Oscars, loses all of them. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. It didn't get anything. It didn't get anything. Uh, you know, instead, this other film called Going My Way, which is like a kind of sentimental, priesty, weepy thing, more of a Shawshank type of film, sweeps the Oscars instead. Billy Wilder gets so upset that he's sitting on the aisle, you know, watching this happen. And the director, Leo McCary, keeps like running up and down, taking all his awards. And when he wins Best Picture, 
Billy Wilder just kind of gently puts a foot into the aisle and trips him. What? Yeah. Oh, I love Billy Wilder. But this is also why the next year, Billy Wilder's next film, The Lost Weekend, which is also terrific, sweeps the Oscars. It's that thing where the Oscars balance out. They remember that they should have gotten that person. They realize they kind of correct their mistake. Exactly. You know, The Lost Weekend is not on this list. So it's just, it's that interesting interplay of like Oscars to awards to this A popularity contest and making amends for former mistakes. The opposite of what happened with Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Hey, Paul, by the way, I want you to pay attention to this one scene really quick. Really quick. Pay attention to the secretary. I'm having a visitor, if you don't mind. No, no, I want you to stay and watch me handle this. Mrs. Dietrichson. That line, Mrs. Dietrichson. Yes. That secretary, does she look familiar? Have you seen her before? I'm having a visitor, if you don't mind. No, no, I want you to stay and watch me handle this. Mrs. Dietrichson. Okay, she, I mean, I don't know who that is. Well, we've seen her before. We saw her just last week, in fact. Really? Well, let me show you. I don't suppose there's a drink left. You can have one at Max's. I don't think I'm going. Why not? Because I don't want to. I'm so happy for you, Eve. Thank you so much. I'm so happy for you, Eve. Interesting. That's her? That is the same person. She was sitting up at the dais the whole time that Eve was up there waiting to get her award. That is Best Flowers, and she is known as the Queen of the Hollywood Extras. She was in 350 films. She was in five films that won Best Picture. She is the classy extra. She doesn't usually talk. We just got to hear her talk twice without even really noticing it was her talking. But that is Best Flowers. She's kind of got this little cult following. She was this patrician-looking, platinum blonde, then-turned-silver-haired woman who became a popular extra because back then when you started being an extra, if you had your own fancy clothes, it was easier for you to get a job. So when she did her first couple jobs, she made sure to buy the fancy clothes. Then she just kept getting all the fancy person jobs. And then there she was. So best flowers. I just want to give her a little shout out, everybody. She went on to help found the Screen Extras Guild. And I do believe she still has the record for having the most performances in pictures nominated for Best Picture. I think it's like 23. So we might be seeing her a lot. Uh, and one other little fun fact, one of the best scenes in the film, I know I've said that a lot about many scenes, but uh, is when they have completed their murder plan and they're about to escape and the car doesn't start. And you see that sweat and you see their faces and it's a silent scene and it's so well done. But that scene was added after Billy Wilder had problems with his car not starting after one of the shooting days. So midway through shooting, he's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if their car didn't start? And so I love that idea that like, the, you know, just not even necessity is the mother of invention, just sort of a good idea can come to you in the middle of something. And it, it adds so much more tension to that scene. Well, and what I like about it is it doesn't really matter. The car does start. They do yeah. get away. He doesn't have to write it in really like, oh, but then this fate of right, God, yeah. this coincidence, this act of God, to use insurance terminology, um, made them get caught. It means nothing. It just makes it a little bit worse for a second. And then it's supposedly fine. Here's a tiny fun fact. You know how there's the guy who's on the back of the train, then he shows up at the insurance agency, yeah. and he's like, I'm a Medford man. Medford man. Medford man. That's what Medford men are. There's a famous person from Medford. Oh, really? We, we might have seen a movie with her. Who? Who seems like the most honest actress? That we've seen a movie with. If that's a trick question. I'm sorry. I'll just tell you. It's yeah. Ginger Rogers. It's oh, from Medford. Oh, I buy that. Yeah. Look at that. A Medford man and a Medford woman. So, look, undeniably, we agree. This movie clearly belongs on the AFI top 100 list. It's at 29, which I think is a fine spot for it. I wouldn't mind it moving up a little bit. We don't know. But at this point, it's definitely one of my favorites. Where do you think it falls for you? 
I think it's great. I mean, in the first list, I think it was somewhere in the lower 30s. Then yeah. they redo it. They bump it up. So it's it's in motion. I love it's it. It's in flux. All right. Well, you feeling lucky, Paul? Should I, I am. Should I roll these dice right I here? I cannot wait. What do you got? All right. Little giant die. Whoa. Uh, whoa, I hit my glass. Uh, and it landed on number number five. Oh, what's that? Oh, singing in the rain. Whoa. I kind of think this is a great companion piece to Double Indemnity, don't you? How? <laughs> I guess I guess in my mind, I just feel like they celebrate like two very distinct styles of cinema that are, you know, this is the crux of film noir. And then singing in the rain is to me, I think one of the best movie musicals. Uh, well, okay, Paul. Well, then you've just given me a dark and twisted idea for our call-in for our Singing in the Rain episode then. In the spirit of Double Indemnity, let's do Fuck, Marry, Kill with the three stars of Singing in the Rain. So are you going to fuck, marry, or kill Donald O'Connor, Gene Kelly, or Debbie Reynolds? Please don't kill Donald O'Connor. Don't bias them. Don't bias them. <laughs> <laughs> so fuck, marry, kill with the three stars of Singing in the Rain. Call in. At 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Fuck, Mary Kill. I got my opinion, but I'm not going to share it yet. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. But make sure that you subscribe to this podcast if you're listening and you like it. Recommend it to a friend and join us on our Facebook page and our Twitter page as the conversation always continues there. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. Ah! Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. 
for the love of home.